When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Do you want to say hello? He's a rescue. He was about to be put down. He's a rescue and you big baby. He's quite special, but his daughter is, is out and out a therapy dog. She got a gift, man. Well, hello, Will Young here. Welcome to the Wellbeing Lab. Thanks for joining me. It's a good one today. I think it's a really good one because we're going to be talking about relationships and then we're going to be talking about somatic therapy. What is that, I hear you ask? We're going to find out. We've got two good people. They're really good at what they do. That's the whole thing about this podcast is people who I think are brilliant at what they do. They share their advice and wisdom and hopefully we all learn from them. If we don't, we just give up and go on holiday. Let's talk about Amy Chan, who's my first guest. She's the founder of Renew Breakup Bootcamp and the author of Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart. It is a really good book and I would recommend it and I don't recommend any books that I don't think are great. We talk about why you're drawn to certain people, um, how to change it if it's not working for you, the bodily science and the chemicals. She's a very fascinating person and she's been through the mill and come out the other side. We started by talking about the myth of closure. There's this this myth that people who are heartbroken believe and that they're going to get closure. And that closure is, well, if only they apologized, if only they realized what they did to me, if only I found out the information of why they did that, they think that, okay, finally I'll get that peace and then I'm going to be okay after that. But Closure is such an illusion and people are chasing the wrong thing because closure doesn't actually exist. What they're actually looking for is peace and acceptance. They are looking for an exhale from the anger and the sadness and the disappointment. But they are running around trying to get closure, which is very disempowering and it is completely dependent on something external, something they have zero control over. So they wait And I've seen people who have been waiting for closure for five years and they can't seem to get on because they've been trying to troubleshoot the wrong thing. That's really interesting because people talk a lot about closure, don't they? And it's so interesting hearing what you're saying is that's a that's something that's sort of unattainable or or people are missing the point, I guess. Yeah, I think it's troubleshooting the wrong thing. And as long as your focus is outward facing you do not have agency because you cannot control what someone says or does or if they apologize. And if you focus on punishing them or getting answers from them, you just are very disempowered to take the steps to move forward. And so tell me a bit about how you've managed to get to this place. So I I half joke that I've been heartbroken since I've been a little kid. And Relationships was always the one area I couldn't figure out. I was able to do well in school, everything, but 
I constantly was heartbroken. And that's what caused me to become a relationship columnist about 12 years ago. And I thought if I could just understand the science of love, then maybe I'll get some in my life. Then I was, you know, about nine years ago, I was in a relationship and I thought I'd met the one. My plans and dreams since I was a little girl to have my happily forever after, I finally got a taste of it. The plan was date, get married, have children, and the whole thing. And that relationship fell apart due to infidelity. And it was a shock. And my whole life just kind of turned around. And I felt so broken because I put so much of my identity in him and us. And so without that, I didn't know who I was and I went into a really dark place. I had suicidal thoughts, like it was real bad. And I gradually climbed myself out of that hole and started to try everything I could do to heal from therapy, Reiki, psychics, yoga retreats, you name it, I tried it. And, and things helped bit by bit, but I continuously had this kind of bitterness that I carried around with me. And eventually I was able to kind of move through using all these different healing modalities. And I thought to myself, well, what happens to those people who don't have a support system, who don't know the tools? Like what happens to them? Because I know that when you have no hope, when you don't think the pain is going to end, you are only a few decisions away from doing something completely destructive. Mm. And that is all of us. And heartbreak doesn't skip any of us. It's going to come. <laughs> so how can we deal with it and come out stronger? And that's the, where I came up with the idea to create the world's first breakup boot camp. I mean, that, that's amazing. And I, and I really relate to what I've heard you say. You know, you, you joke, you've been heartbroken from a young age, you know, I've always had a sort of sadness in me. Relationships, to be honest, they're actually traumatising for me, you know, mm -hmm. and it's the inner work that I've had to do to look at that, not point the finger, but look at, right, well, what am, what's going on inside me? What kind of things then come up when, when people come to the, the boot camp? Because there's so many different types of characters that you talk about in, in the book. I mean, obviously, you, you know, you're... Um, you respect people's anonymity and things like that. But, you know, it's really interesting. So you can get very powerful businesswomen who are running a massive companies and, and they have this awful heartbreak. Are there sort of similar tropes that you see? Yeah, for sure. I've now worked with so many people that within a few minutes of hearing them talk about the relationship history, I know kind of what bucket they are in, meaning what are those subconscious beliefs? What are the patterns? What are the blockers? And there's actually not that many. Um, I think that the people that will come to a breakup boot camp naturally self-selects. It is a definitely more of an overachieving type. And it is this kind of person who usually at a young age learned that to get their parents' attention or love, they got good grades or they did something good or they were a good child. And at a young age, they learned, oh, I need to perform. I need to be useful. I need to be helpful. If I do this, I will earn love. And they adapt. And what happens is it does wonders for their career. I, I mean, I'm a case myself. Uh, you learn how to adapt and you become this overachiever. But then when it comes to matters of the heart, 
it doesn't actually have a positive impact because you can't earn your way into love. And so I find that that's probably a really big category. And another big category of the types of people who come are those who really struggle with what we call an anxious attachment, meaning they fundamentally fear abandonment or rejection. And it's not really a cognitive thing. It is almost an impulsive thing where their nervous system can detect any signs or signals that there's a threat to their connection, whether they're real or imagined, and they will react to that threat as if their life is in danger and sometimes sabotage or punish or push people away or choose people who can wound them in a very similar way to how they are familiar with. Yeah, now that's always such an interesting one, isn't it? Because if people are wired a certain way, it's almost like their nervous system, they could pick out those the person that's going to emotionally abandon them from 100 yards away. You know, if you put one of yeah. those people in a room... Because it's complicated, isn't it? Because people think if they get an adrenalised reaction, maybe, to meeting someone at a party, they think, oh, it was love. But actually, it's possibly just their nervous system going, this person's going to abandon you, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's familiarity of chaos or unavailability. So how do you unpack that? Because it's like, I mean, I call it, it's like turning the Titanic. You know, it's not like an overnight thing. It's like, you've got to turn that Titanic to start re-experiencing love, felt sense of love, not just cognitive, you know? But I mean, how do you go about doing that? So it's definitely possible. And I have many examples of that happening, including myself. And we all have a chemistry compass. And this is our internal GPS system that points us into the direction of who we're drawn to and who we're repulsed by. And there's this theory in psychology called that we have attractions of deprivation, meaning we are drawn to what's familiar. And human beings are drawn to what's familiar, whether it's food or music or romantic partners. So if, if you didn't grow up with a healthy model of what love looks like and feels like, you have a familiar experience. So for example, I grew up in a, a household where my father was a busy entrepreneur. He was never around and he was very emotionally unavailable, but I did get attention if I got good grades and he would give me $40. And so, you know, I would grow up and I would date these unavailable types that looked really different. In my 20s, I only dated DJs and club owners. And in my 30s, I only dated tech entrepreneurs. And I was like, oh no, there's no pattern here. But the emotional experience was exactly the same. I was always pining for their attention, their time, trying to prove that I was worthy enough for their love. And so I was like, oh, it's the emotional experience that's the same. So I think for anyone who's listening, if you want to know, is your chemistry compass broken? Take a look at your history of relationships. What are the key emotions that keep coming up? And they could be positive or negative, but look for the patterns. And then you have a starting point to see if that chemistry compass needs adjusting. It's not that you as a human being is broken. And I think that's really important to differentiate because when it doesn't work out in love, people have a tendency to be like, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. And no, it's not that at all. <laughs> mm. um, but who you're choosing is one of the biggest parts. It's the biggest part of the equation of creating a happy relationship. And if the chemistry compass is, is broken and yet the person feels that that is such a natural, you know, because people, people think, let's say, I can't help who I'm drawn to mm. and they might not see the pattern how does one, because it must feel unnatural to begin with, 
to go against that compass, which has felt so natural for so many years. Yeah, you may not be able to help who you're attracted to, but you can help if you choose to invest in that person. And that is a big differentiator. And that's why it starts with awareness, right? If you have the awareness, then you know that, okay, my chemistry compass is off. It really needs an overhaul. So the next time you lock eyes with someone and you're like, oh my gosh, 10 out of 10 chemistry, soulmate bells yeah. ringing, you can count that, oh, this is probably an attraction of deprivation. My subconscious is probably picking up cues that this is a very familiar scenario. And that's when you say, oh, because I know that, I'm going to make a different choice right now. I'm actually not going to invest in that person. I'm actually not going to call them, right? And then you'll, you'll do what's called opposite action. And how you build up, how you start to shift your chemistry compass, well, I mentioned earlier, human beings are drawn to what's familiar, so if you've only been exposed to chaos and unavailability, then you need to now increase your exposure to security and stability. And I always encourage people to do a dating experiment. If you're on dating apps, change those parameters to younger and older, uh, date people who are outside of your type because your type is complete BS, and just start to optimize for kindness and aligned values. And yeah, in the beginning, you're like, oh, I don't feel chemistry. It's supposed to be that way. You're changing your chemistry compass. Yeah. But as you get familiar with how it feels like when someone shows up, when someone intentionally wants to date you, eventually that becomes your new baseline. Yeah, it really makes sense. Tell me about the science element of it, because it's so fascinating that you bring the two together. Could you talk a bit more about the science of the heart and the science of love? Yeah, I'll talk about a few things. So, you know, we all know that what you just talked about, right? When we meet someone and we want that, that chemistry that, and we don't know, is it adrenaline? Is it anxiety? Or is it V1? Well, something to understand about what happens is in the romantic stage of love, right? You are on love drugs. So, you know, your first couple of months, you are operating on this kind of chemical imbalance. So you have higher levels of dopamine. Dopamine is the molecule of more. It motivates you to get more of what you want. Not necessarily more of what is good for you, more of what you want. So something to understand is if when someone is unavailable, so they may have started off really strong, something we called love bombing. They come in, there's flowers, there's dates, there's promises, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm inclined on, it's amazing. And then they disappear for a week. And then they don't respond to your texts or they're a little bit cold. And then they come back in again. What's happening there is your brain doesn't know when the reward is going to come. So because of the unpredictability of the rewards, you actually get hooked into an addictive cycle. And when you do get a little bit of attention, so a week later they send you a text, hey, what's up? You get this huge spike of dopamine. So it's a bigger, a bigger hit. And it's the same, you know, psychology that they have realized on the slot machines. Why someone is there just trying to get that win is because they don't know when they're going to hear that ding, ding, ding. And it's that unpredictability that keeps them hooked. So when you start to understand what's at play here, mm. you start to realize, oh, there's, there's chemicals going on. It's also important to understand that there's a passionate stage of love and the companionate stage of love. So the passionate stage, when you don't need to sleep, when you know all you focus is the you know apple of your eye, and you all have all that dopamine, 
there is an expiry date. Uh, your body cannot function like that for the rest of its life. And it's really mother nature's way of giving you enough momentum to like get together and procreate. So that the research shows lasts anywhere from six months to two years. And what happens after that is instead of it being so dopamine driven, it changes into companionate love, which is driven by oxytocin um, and these other chemicals that are called the here and now chemicals, which make you appreciate the present. And it's a lot calmer. It's a lot more secure. Now, if you don't know that there's a natural evolution of these chemicals, you might think at the one and a half year mark when you don't just want to rip off their clothes, like, oh, something's wrong. This is boring. Maybe there's another the one where I feel that rush, but you don't understand. Like this is a natural progression of relationships. Can I ask you, I actually do want to ask you about jealousy in relationships because I think it's something that I've only ever experienced it once and it was very out of character for me. And it was so interesting with how powerful it was. I remember seeing my then boyfriend dancing with someone in a club and I sort of like stepped in between them. It was really hot. And he actually said to me, what are you doing? I was like, I'm not actually sure. Um, But jealousy can become, can eat people alive, can't it, in relationships? Do you have any insight into that and where it can come from? Jealousy is one of the the main human emotions. So I don't think it's anything to feel ashamed about. It is a very natural emotion. And there is a degree of jealousy that could be actually beneficial for relationships. But it's when it goes to the extreme, when it starts to, you know, cause controlling behaviors or manipulation, those sorts of things where it can deteriorate a relationship. And there's many different roots of the jealousy. And I think the very first step is to understand, well, where is the root of it coming from? And one thing to ask yourself is, is there an actual real threat to my relationship and connection? Or is it imagined? And is it coming from a historical wound? Because typically when we feel jealous, there's somewhere, there's an insecurity, there is a lack of safety happening. So you want to know where is that coming from, right? If, if it's because your subconscious or even conscious is picking up signals like, oh, they're kind of turning their back when they text message and you're just picking up these things, that could be like, oh, this is, a, this is actually potentially a real threat. Mm. But a lot of the times as well, it's not because of the behavior or the situation of what's happening with your partner. And it's like, oh, a long time ago, something happened and you have an association that maybe people can't be trusted. I don't know. You see them following certain people on Instagram and that really rubs you the wrong way. Mm. Well, you know, you could tell your partner, get off, don't follow any of them on Instagram. And that might not actually take away that feeling of insecurity and lack of safety. So what is it that you need? Is it because your relationship is in a tough spot because there hasn't been a lot of passion or date nights or, or being present? Or is it something else? Um, but it's not one size fits all. But I think it's so important. We get to the root of the issues versus troubleshooting the symptoms. Because if you just troubleshoot the symptoms, the same thing will just yeah. keep coming up in different packages. I feel like we could be taught a lot better in how we communicate in relationships. Because people aren't great at it, are they? Is that something that you look at a lot? And Yeah, I, I would say here's one tool that I think could be a game changer, whether it's romantic or in business or platonic relationships, is 
we are constantly having, should be having these conversations where we express our needs and preferences and boundaries. We need to normalize that versus, you know, what I used to do, or even maybe I just did last week is like the cold, silent treatment or the one word text messages back, right? No, nothing's wrong. We got to cut that out. We need to really work on communicating like grown adults, not like wounded children. And I think one thing that would be really helpful is before you have a conversation, what I call high stakes, so whether you are expressing a boundary or a need or an insecurity, is ask yourself if you're going in with a handshake or boxing gloves. Because if you go in with boxing gloves, which means I'm ready to punch you in the face, what that looks like is you use accusatory language or you send that text message where they know something's wrong and they're in trouble. Um, basically, you want to do things so that they don't automatically have their nervous system pick up that they're in danger and that will make them feel like they need to be defensive and protect themselves. And they will protect themselves by either fighting back at you or being aggressive or stonewalling. Yeah. And you've lost the conversation before it's begun. So you always want to go with a handshake. And that is using I language, I feel, right? Um, and even the timing of the conversations. I used to pull this thing where late at night, right before falling asleep, I would try to talk to my partner about feelings and, and all these things. And he's like, oh, what? Worst time ever. Yeah. Like now I know, don't have that conversation at midnight, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so handshake. And and if you sense that you're having the conversation, they start getting defensive, then you're like, oh, you stop trying to prove your point or, or the content of the conversation and you go back to establishing connection and safety. And if you start practicing this, you actually become really good at it. And you'll find that your conversations start actually going somewhere versus this, you know, vicious cycle. Is there, I suppose I'd like to end on this really, but do you think that there's things that could be done within education that could really help people for relationships? Yes, for sure. I mean, they should definitely be teaching this stuff in school. How do you regulate your emotions, right? How do you not play hot potato with your emotions and instead are able to feel it in your body, address where you feel it, find out the meanings of it, find out what is it trying to tell you, right? Our emotions, they're not good or bad. We, we are we're socialized to shame them. That, oh, sadness is bad, crying is bad, don't cry, be strong. Like these messages that you hear since you're a child, uh, even the messages you hear about romance. Like, I mean, look at every love song and movie still going to this day. Like, look at Bridgerton. You're going to get saved by this unavailable narcissist that's yeah. going to like one day love you, maybe? Like, it's the same old script that love is intensity and is a rush of adrenaline and it's you know, unpredictable. And, and so we have all these messages that are teaching us the wrong thing in, in the culture. So yeah, I think that we need in our education, whether it's through school or parents or whatever it is, what are the realistic storylines of relationships? And how can we have a better relationship, a healthier relationships with our emotions with ourselves so that we don't shame ourselves when we feel the entire range of emotions, which I think is so beautiful. It's what makes us human and how we can relate to one another and learn the tools of communication and our words to express our boundaries and our needs. I think all of this needs to be taught. Yeah. Amy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Take care till the next time. Goodbye. Bye. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I thought that was wonderful. I think Amy Chan is a brilliant person. I hope to have her back another time because I feel like she's got more to say. Now coming up is somatic therapy, which is something that I've done. We talked to Vijay Rana, who is an integrative counsellor and somatic experience trauma practitioner. I know. I've worked with Vijay for a long time. He's uh, the real deal. I learned a lot about what somatic therapy is, releasing things that are trapped in the body, using the body to heal oneself, the importance of using humour in therapy. So we're going to talk about all those things. I asked him to start with just simply to define what somatic therapy is. The term somatic doesn't really mean a great deal to a lot of people. What it really means is the body. So somatic means body. And there's a range of different therapies that include working with the body and actually working from the body therapeutically. So we're not working from the mind, thinking and talking. We're working from the basis of sensing into the body and using that as our working methodology. So that's a kind of general take on body work. This has worked so amazingly well for me. And I think there are a few things that come up. You know, one is that I was so focused on the mind and looking at sort of CBT or all these kind of things, mm. you know, and then realising that actually how the nervous system works and how that drives us and actually how that can then drive the mind. And the other thing was that I found, I suppose, quite sad for a while was that my God, does this mean that all our nervous systems are set up, you know, from a very young age, let's say, if we don't have a particular traumatic one-off event, you know, and people are, we're all just going through our lives, not resolving what's going around in our bodies and driving us. So let's say if you're anxious, you know, one of my things was I was constantly anxious, so I'd constantly move or constantly want to, you know, move house or do up another house or you know and that depressed me in a way because I thought god are people just fucked from the beginning and that's it but then I thought well no because somatic therapy has completely changed that for me mm. I wish that more people knew about it but I think once mm. you start talking about energy and things people kind of switch off to oh yeah I mean, absolutely. It's completely, it's very difficult to explain. Um, and the woo-woo element is definitely attached to anything to do with the body because then it's so, so kind of closely um, associated with the new age. So do you have an example, BJ, of what you would do in a session? Yeah, so in a somatic experience session, there's basically two main 
um, pillars that you're going to work with. One is releasing stuck, defensive nervous system energy of fight, flight, freeze. Then the other pillar is releasing suppressed and stuck emotion, right? Increasing tolerance for difficult feeling, not because we're masochistic, but because we want to allow feelings to complete and move through us. Feelings have a cycle. They can be released when they're felt fully. So I've got an example. So let's do the, the nervous system energy. So I'd start off by saying, if I was a practitioner, what are you noticing when you sense into your body? I'm feeling really stiff. What else do you notice? My neck and shoulders feel really tight. Your neck and shoulders feel really tight. Yeah. Could you do this? But see how you feel about the suggestion. Could you move your head from side to side, your shoulders up and down, and then wiggle your fingers and wiggle your toes? Yeah, I can do that. When you finished, take some time to sense into your body. What do you notice? It's really weird. There's a tingling sensation in my hands. Sensing the tingling, you could also wiggle your fingers again. I can now see that your leg's twitching. Yeah. Allowing your leg to twitch as best as you can. Now I can see the other leg is also moving too. Yeah. Allowing the legs to move as they need to. I can now see that they're both going up and down. Yeah, yeah, they're both moving. They look like they're moving like pistons. Allowing that to happen. It's getting faster. You're noticing it's getting faster. Sensing into your legs. It feels like I'm running. Sensing that you're running. That's really interesting because that's a really good, clear example of what a somatic session might be and and allowing the client to tune in to their fight flight uh, yeah. response and actually sort of almost lean into it yeah. um, to then, I guess, ultimately dissipate. Well, there was tingling, wasn't there? And exactly. Dissipate that energy. Exactly. So the stiffness in the body which is suggestive of freeze, right? So you get the client to do voluntary movement. And that was, and I checked it out with them as well, because sometimes someone doesn't want to come out of freeze because it's too scary, right? Nine times out of 10, they're okay. So you get them to do voluntary movement. And then if they've done that, so moving the head, the shoulders and the fingers, etc., then they go and they sense into their bodies. What do they notice? They notice tingling. Now, the tingling is like the discharge of the nervous system energy. That's where the discharge of the nervous system energy is occurring. But then if you stay with the client a bit longer, you notice the leg is twitching and there's some involuntary movement coming now. Right. So what do I do? I encourage the client, don't lead them, just to stay with it as best as they can. And then both legs start moving and then they start moving like pistons. And I say, just, just sensing into your body. What do you notice? It feels like I'm running. There's your flight response. Mm -hmm. So in that small segment, you've got the freeze constriction. The body's stiff and still voluntary movement suggested by the practitioner. Discharge coming out of the hands, tingling, trembling, temperature changes normally. So mm -hmm. that's energy releasing. Um, and then... What we had here was an in involuntary movement of the flight response. They sense they're running, and then that mm. can complete, completing the nervous system charge. So that's the example. Now, it's good to be able to, to give that example, because otherwise it's hard to explain. How, well, how did you get into it? Basically, when I was younger, I had issues like body dysmorphia, body shame, and my main thing was problems with intimacy. So I was avoidant, right? So I 
like growing up I didn't really have relationships and that's really damaging if you're in your teens and took me a long while to get into my first relationship when in my early 20s but I was okay I was okay in my 20s and I happened to work in a mind body spirit bookstore worked there for a long time really really enjoyed it and I got drawn to reading about what you said somatic therapy body work but I'm not one to just read theory without wanting to try it for me it's it's useless without a praxis without experience without basically wanting to get better what I would do is re- read the theory and then I'd go and do workshops or seminars experiential work in it or then go and see practitioners and then I ended up training um, and, I, and then it became a qualification just as an outgrowth it wasn't like I thought oh, I want a career in body work I was really happy working in the store but I trained and then I started practicing as a body work practitioner in this emotional release work and it was really good then Peter Levine's work came out in the late 90s and, I, and it was quite uh, seminal at the time and it was the fight, flight, freeze, and the instinctual response in the nervous system is stuck. You've got to work with it at that level. It's not emotional. Mm. And then what I did is I trained in that in order to support the emotional work. So those two, two kind of main branches, instinctual nervous system release, and then bringing emotion out through the body. So I'm mainly in and around body work and trauma. And then just finally, I needed to legitimize myself in the eyes of clients because this mm. stuff is all woo-woo, right, as we've been saying. So what I did, which is a shame, because when you think about what we're talking about, it's really hardcore. There's nothing flaky about it. Major um, hardcore. Yeah, yeah. major get hardcore. It, like, right? get, let's go to the frigging source of the, you know, the dandelion root of the... Exactly. You know what I mean? Let's yeah. Let's go into the frigging fire. Let's not just dance around the edges. Exactly. There you go. Mm. And what, isn't it a shame that then that's because it's in a category of alternative that then that becomes like you say you know hippie or whatever or well i think um, also also i wonder and sorry i'm aware you were going to say talk about legitimizing but i just you know we've gone on a tangent but i think it's a valid one like almost the nature of the work is so deep that it's actually easier and i'm not saying that working on the mind is not beneficial Mm. because yeah it's really beneficial it's been really Mm. beneficial for me um Mm. but i wonder if almost the nature of somatic work people don't want to go there in the first place because they don't want to go into the body because that's where all the pain is stored so it's like oh well let's just talk about why i continue to have shit relationships and we'll just go Mm. around in that or let's just talk about how you know or or why can't i connect to people it's easier to just carry Mm. on talking and read a few more books than going Right. Well, let's just see where that is in the body. I mean, how many people want to do that? Oh, they don't. They don't. And you don't. couldn't you couldn't have put it better. You couldn't have put it better. I mean, that's my experience entirely. And that is what I believe the association is really about. It's about avoidance. And we can approach that in a judgmental way. Right. And I'm not saying you are or I no. am, but it can be seen as, look, you're, sh- you're shitting on this because you don't want to go there. Right. So you've got to make it other. You've got to make it woo-woo. When in, in fact, this woo-woo is exactly about going to pain and tolerating it. And I, I entirely agree with you that that's, that's the impulse. It's an impulse away f- from feeling pain. Just to go back to that kind of fear of going into the body, compassionate bit is I really get it. I really get that you don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Um, mm. There's an edge that I don't want to go. I, I mean, I'd rather not, right? And, mm. I don't yeah, want to yeah, go there, yeah, never. You, 
Exactly. At the beginning of a session, I always well, say, yeah. oh, God. Exactly. exactly. And that, oh, God, is, is, is appropriate. There's going to be mm. resistance to going to what's difficult. So um, my sense of this is this isn't popular for the reasons we talked about, avoidance, um, and it hasn't got kind of a, a, an easy pickup, like this is going to help me immediately, right? But also I think there's a, a demographic here that's quite rare, which is the person who's going to do this work is going to be really functional. They're going to have traumatic histories but maybe they're probably working or they've got okay relationships or whatever or maybe not but they're functional when they're working they've got disposable income um so they can pay for these treatments and then primarily what i have seen because i'm really curious about what the drivers are for transformation i think it all comes down to i want to get into my material i mm. want to face my pain it's almost like is it like you know how I don't like those awful quotes, but there is one that says all oh, something like the pain of sitting in it is actually more painful than the pain of facing it. When I yeah. came to it, it was yeah. like, oh, fucking, let's just fucking get on with it because this is just oh. shit. This is shit. That's the next kind of encapsulation of why they would come. And, and I hear that time and time again. I say to them, particularly with the bodywork, it was like, you know, this is going to feel really bad. And they're like, don't, don't care. It feels really bad now. If it's going to feel yeah. bad and I'm going to be out of it, better I get on the table and feel those horrible feelings because they're going to complete. And then I'm out of the cycle of it being stuck in my body. Have you seen examples of people that have just transformed? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I have. The percentages are quite high. It doesn't take a lot. I, I mean, this is interesting. It doesn't take a lot to um, be, if someone's really driven, like we said earlier, to encounter their emotional and traumatic material in their bodies, what they're really doing is kind of shutting their eyes, going into the body, working with what's there and it shifts things relatively efficiently because the body hearing you that what's coming up is that the body will want to process it you're creating the facilitation and if you've got the drive which is the kind of holder for it isn't it then yeah. your body's going to find the resolution because it, it wants it. to resolve it exactly exactly absolutely and it's organic exactly as you say yeah. you create the conditions you facilitate the client to go into their body by using techniques like sensation tracking and awareness a little bit similar to mindfulness but but you hang out more with difficulty than you would in mindfulness mm. that's one mm. way to simplify mm. it then the system starts to do what it wants to discharge stuck defensive survival mechanism energy of fight flight freeze and similarly the second kind of pillar would be it wants to discharge emotion right negative emotion those two things are going to happen and as you say the the driver is the client is determined there's a lot more that goes on in the session fine we don't have yeah. the scope to go yeah. into it but you're holding the space you're facilitating and you're using the body and it's really efficient you know that I used to play lots of jokes and I really do think it's important for people listening. You know, I feel very boundary with you as my therapist, you know, and we've always been very good at that. Mm, but mm. also, I love the fact that you've got a great sense of humour. And for me, my sense of humour has probably been one of the things that saved my fucking life. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, and I would in this, you know, very intense sometimes treatment centre in the middle of Oxford then, and you'd come in to the treatment room to do a somatic session and I'd be hiding. <laughs> I'd be <laughs> I'd be hiding, like either behind the curtains or behind the chair once I hid behind your chair. But then like we'd go on and I'd do like right. the biggest piece right. of work on boarding school where I was like, yeah. 
you know, screaming. Yeah. So for me, like the humour, in fact, I always say that anyway. I think it's important to say that. The humour during all the therapy mm. has always been so important um, because otherwise, what have you, what I used to feel otherwise, what have I got? You mm. know? Well, it's a form of mindfulness, actually. Yeah, well, I think. The, yeah, the way you use humour is, is what we call resourcing. And that's a jargonistic term. It basically mm. means supporting mm. the system. And also, I've got to say, uh, as I know you, you're very funny, right? And it's not, it's important to say it's not an avoidant funny. You never use humour to be avoidant, right? In my no. experience. It's no. just like a little break. There's a burst of laughter. And if anything, you go deeper into your material. Yeah, it's a break. It is a break. And I think like mental health and all those things doesn't have to be always serious because otherwise, my God, if it was serious for me the entire time. I had some of the best laughs I've ever had when I was in treatment. Yeah. Thank you, BJ, for taking the time. Um, Thanks for having me. It's really, really great to be here. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you again in a session straight after, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's been two very interesting people, Amy and Vijay. Sometimes, you know, life throws you a curveball. And the fire alarm in my hallway has decided to start beeping. I think that means the battery's low. I have absolutely no idea how to change it. So apologies for the occasional beeping. It's not my tummy and it's not me trying to sing like Mariah Carey. It's just a, a protesting fire alarm. Um, you've been in touch. Thank you so much. You've got in touch about subjects for episode one and episode two. So I'm going to dive right in. Hi, Will, and all at the Wellbeing Podcast. Well, there are about 20 of us. There aren't. There are three. Thanks so much for setting up this podcast. I believe mental health education and talking about the same is so important. Moi aussi. Uh, I had my first CBT back in 2014 due to ongoing panic attacks and being diagnosed with depression. Uh, this has been undiagnosed since I was a teenager and unfortunately led to other issues such as bullying at school and I suffered with school phobia. My panic attacks would happen on the bus, at home, in the queue, at the shop and at night. I can only describe the feeling as needing to leave the situation immediately or feeling like my heart was going to stop due to it racing and being unable to catch my breath. There were times I couldn't leave my house, particularly when I was a teenager. I've had two lots of CBT sessions in 2014 and 2018 and cannot praise this enough. I was unable to get this on the NHS due to long waiting lists. I knew I had to get help sooner rather than later. I had no choice really but to pay for private sessions. I still use the techniques to this day. The most useful being the decision tree. Ah, I haven't heard of this. I used to be an awful warrior and this would lead to panic attacks. The worry decision tree technique really helps me. Such a simple technique and that's the beauty of CBT. I've also used CBT handbooks in the past. Yeah, we spoke about that. Um, which again have useful tasks to do daily and a great way of retraining your brain. My CBT uh, was only used for my panic attacks, didn't treat my depression or any underlying traumas, but I'm getting help for these. I think it's really important to care for ourselves mentally and physically. Thank you very much for getting in touch. Someone else has been in touch. Thank you so much for your podcast on shopping addiction. And thank you to Dr. Pamela too. Wasn't Dr. Pamela amazing? Will I ever get to calling her not just Pam, but Pammy? Used to have a cleaner at school that was called Pammy. Um, hi, Pammy. I've tried everything. I banned myself from buying new clothes, but then I went eBay crazy, so I still have wardrobes full of unworn clothes. I banned myself from buying books because we have no room. So I switched to Kindle books, which is a nightmare to manage. No packages arrive and they take up no space, so it's well hidden, but it's still costing money. I buy makeup palettes, but tell myself they're too pretty to use, so I hide them in drawers and buy more. 
I really felt what you were saying, the rush and the guilt and the endless browsing, the full basket. Thank you for shining a light on this. I had not thought about what was underlying it. Oh, well, um, I've always done it to a lesser extent. But since I was ill last year and couldn't run, I feel like I've lost a strong part of myself. I can't run yet, but I'm going to start walking. I'll get some exercise and alone time outdoors, find some positive self-soothing methods rather than buying intangible books. Thank you for being so honest. I'm glad, um, you know, it's got you thinking about the reasons behind it. Um, hi, Will. Just wanted to get in touch and say I found your podcast on shopping addiction. Really insightful. I'm currently working with Pamela Roberts. Yes, on my own addictive behaviour. It's been just over a year. I have to say that even with someone as experienced as Pamela, recovery is really hard and it's not a linear path. It is not. Some days are good, some are bad, some are truly dreadful. I'm only just coming to a place of fully admitting I'm an addict to myself, although I've known for many years. Um, getting to a point where it resonates fully within my real self has been slow going. Yes, and it, it will do. Um, it's been hard to permeate the years of feeling numb. It's not all doom and gloom. I can be compassionate to myself, give myself praise for things I'm doing well, and most importantly, get back up if I fall down, which I found I have quite recently. Keep talking about these things, Will. You're doing a great job connecting with people who are struggling, uh, sending you my strength, determination and love. That's really lovely. Thank you. And um, no, the path is not easy. You're having to reprogram years of, um, you know, neural pathways and thoughts and everything else. So I'm so pleased you're with... I'm going to call her my Pammy now, because um, she is amazing. Well done. Hello, Will. This came via Instagram. Hello, Will and podcast team. Just wanted to say I've listened to the first episode, loved it. You went into enough detail with the subjects you were discussing that it was interesting and useful, but not so much detail that I had to be an expert to understand it. Oh, good. That's very useful feedback. I hope that you do an episode based around how to find the right therapist when the need arises. Yeah, that's very interesting. I fall into a number of different categories. I'm part of the LGBTQ plus community and have an eating disorder. I have addiction issues. I've had therapy before and it has been helpful up to a point, but I never really know how to find the most suitable therapist. Do I need to find a specialist in eating disorders, a therapist that is LGBTQ plus or a more general therapist? I'm hoping your team will have some advice on this. I know you've had lots of therapy, Will. <laughs> I have. Um, well, yes, I think with eating disorders, I would recommend a specialist in that field. Try not to run before you can walk. And also, you know, they're great support groups for the LGBTQ plus community. 12-step groups that are uniquely LGBTQ plus. I've found those very useful in the past. So try and take, you know, one thing at a time. But I really empathise. It's a really tricky, you know, symptom of pain eating disorders. Thank you so much for getting in touch. Um, hi, Will. Just wanted to say I've just listened to your first wellbeing podcast and I really loved it. It is great that we finally live in an age where we can openly discuss mental health topics and concerns that were previously taboo. I'm really excited to listen to the rest of these and I think many, many people, myself included, will be able to take something away from each episode. Thank you so much for getting in touch and please do, you know, about anything, you know, how you've been moved by topics that we've covered, maybe topics that you want us to cover, um, and just, you know, any uh, what you think, what, what's come up for you. It's the name of the game. If you want to get in touch, Instagram, at the Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Facebook, at the Wellbeing Lab Podcast. There's a theme. Twitter, at the Wellbeing Lab. Email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com. Next week is workplace relationships and rumination. Yeah. Very interesting, actually. So do tune in for that. I'm now going to get a sledgehammer and attack the fire alarm because I think it's leading me to a mini breakdown. Until the next time, bye-bye.
Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 